Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's what we do normally. Normally we look at US and UK politics. And what I like to do is have a group of pundits, a group of friends with me to look at the main news stories from either side of the Atlantic. Could be Britain, could be America, sometimes even Canada. And uh, we run the rule over it from the perspective of the other side. That's what we do normally. But um, we live... I think, or we're living through one of the most pivotal times in modern history. Um, this week we've seen the fall of Kabul. And what this has sharply brought into focus is uh, American foreign policy since the accession uh, to office of Barack Obama. That fundamentally America has tried to uh, detangle itself away from foreign uh, engagements hiding this all through uh, various policy pronouncements such as America First or drone strikes was actually the retreat of of American uh, commitment. And what has happened is a spectacular denouement of that policy with the fall of Kabul. So what I want to do is not run the rule over why America was there, we know the reasons why America was there, or what America should have done in the last 20 years. What we want to do is look forward globally for the next 20 years because I think we're about to enter, in effect, the 1920s and the 1930s in terms of global instability. Uh, We don't live in a unipolar world anymore. We live in a multipolar world. There is no global policeman. America has abrogated that responsibility and has soundly been defeated in the streets and in the mountain passes of Afghanistan. So what we want to do is look at what are going to be the effects on geopolitics, migration and refugees and specifically climate change. I'm sure there's going to be many 
other topics and areas which we could discuss but fundamentally for the sake of the podcast we only have one hour so what we we're going to look at is political uncertainty in institutions why have we lost faith in them the US and China what this means in terms of trade and global hegemony the rise of India and its tensions with China um the relevance of Europe or not geopolitically has Europe massively now shrunk we are going to look at the uh middle east and what the american defeat means immediately for that region we're going to look at discontent in latin america we have the rise of bolsonaro and anti establishment politicians there also but also we have the rise of africa with a landmass uh, which is bigger than india and china and the us and europe combined Africa will become a raise a rising player in the next 20 years. Uh we're going to look at migrants. The effects of climate change are going to push the world into many crises to do with migrants and refugees and I also want us to look at climate change. So those are the broad outlines. Uh we have on stage uh my good friend Rebecca for the Blacks. We have AB who is a at one of the stalwarts on mid atlantic we have my good friend kelly saunders we have ben mendelson who is uh, in bikino faso right now we have bilal wilson we have aaron fisher we have hadjir who is over in the great state of minnesota minnesota sorry and we have amina yasmin who is an expert in the global south but also in um urban planning and we expect many more people to join us before the end of the podcast first off i'm going to quickly go through and ask you because the starting point is the fall of kabul um what i want is quick takes from everybody on stage rebecca for the blacks you're up first i uh, really quickly so i spoke about this at length yesterday what is american foreign policy you know are people willing to open up their eyes to destabilizing nature that uh that has too often unfortunately been the byproduct of um american foreign policy if you look at haiti you look at oh you, cuba you look at uh chile you know the you know you look at um guatemala people can read the economic hitman they can read the people's history of the united states to get a clearer understanding on what america actually does. So once you see that, um you're able to contextualize and maybe not be as shocked and in this kind of like out of nowhere cognitive dissonance and you'd be like we're like oh yeah mm-hmm. this is America. So this is America apt point to end on. AB your hot take sir. Um I wouldn't necessarily call it a hot take but it would not surprise me if uh, America is back in Afghanistan at some point within the next 5 years um and that yeah that that's pretty much where I'm at I I think that this uh uh whatever negotiations uh were done um between the United States government and the Taliban I think that uh there is a possibility that you know further military action will come in the in the event that the that the Taliban uh does not go forward um or or pull through but i also don't really believe that the united states will keep its end of the bargain as well so it's it, it it'll definitely get messy kelly saunders i hope you can hear me um uh my hot take i guess on all of this is that 
Uh, right now, the general public in America is taking a happy vacation from talking about COVID, and it's not going to last long. Uh, ben Mendelson. Yes. Hello, everybody from Ouagadougou. It's a very interesting question. Uh, I, I look back at uh, what 20 years ago was compared to, you know, uh, 2001. Um, I, I don't expect things to be all that much different. Uh, I think with uh, the, the challenges of technology, uh, the changes our conversation is, is going to be a big issue. I, I think uh, China and, and uh, the United States will be running around in circles, sort of balancing each other in both their progression and their, dis- their mutual destruction. I think I'm sitting in the middle of Africa, and it uh, has such huge potential. And uh, in terms of um, uh, an area with the, the, the most rapid possible gro- uh, growth, um, I do think that um, Africa will be uh, in a much better place than it is now. Uh, whereas I see the developed world sort of spinning around, just, you know, trying to get out of their own way. Thank you, Ben. And that's my quick take. Bilal. Thanks. And I'll be brief as well. Um, I just have two hot takes. First of all, I think it's, it's to me pretty apparent that our 24 hour like media news cycle is not really equipped to handle like a complex foreign policy conversation where you need nuance, analytic analysis and things like that. I think that's been pretty clear that I've been seeing. So that's kind of like the first hot take. The second hot take from my perspective is I'm not necessarily looking at, let's say, 20 years from now in Kabul. I'm actually really interested to see what happened in the next 20 days, you know, 40 days, like more of a short time horizon. Um, in particular with, you know, I'm kind of watching, let's say, statements from certain countries. Um, I'm interested to see, you know, what Pakistan says or by way what China says. I'm interested in more really, really short term because the way foreign policy can work, so many things can happen over just five or 10 years. I mean, the Arab Spring was, was what, 2011, right? And, you know, you have many governments fall just in one year. So for me, I'm looking more of a much shorter time frame. So those are my two hot takes. One is on the media and one is just on interested in the next 20 to 40 days and what some, what I think influential countries or uh, who might have some influence with the Taliban might be saying. Aaron Fisher. And thanks, Rayfield. You know, my hot take is, is that nearly 200,000 people lost their lives. Um, it's going to cost roughly $10 trillion. There's countless people who are, who have been displaced and are going to be displaced. And, you know, many more who were wounded and all kinds of other impacts. And, my big question is for what? Um, I really can't answer that question, and I haven't gotten a good answer to that question from anyone. Certainly, not any answer that satisfies me. And I would, uh, I would hope that this signals an end to a, a type of American militarism that has really torn apart lots of countries around the world, and that we, um, that those of us who are Americans, would uh, advocate for our government to move away from those that kind of American militarism or adventurism, as they call it. All right. So what we're going to do is uh, considering that, Ben, you are in the middle of of West Africa, you're in Burkina Faso. Uh, First off, we're going to turn our attention to Africa. Africa has a landmass which is bigger than India, China, the US and Europe combined. And it has uh, it has a scale of resources which no other continent can actually match. Uh, Ben, first question to you. Um, Will the US retreat in Kabul? 
only accelerate what's been happening before, which that um, uh, African uh, governments, regimes will be much more disposed towards Chinese investment, Chinese initiatives, um, just like Ethiopia, um, Angola, etc. Does this mean that China has a much wider canvas to play with economically in terms of economic development in Africa? The answer is, is yes, uh, absolutely. You see it here very much. The, the Chinese uh, are pretty much everywhere. They're investing in, in infrastructure. They're investing uh, in the economy. The Americans actually have brought in uh, resources and a bunch of money, but um, they're very slow for good reason to distribute the, the resources because they're, they're very afraid of, of corruption. The Chinese, not so much. Uh, they're moving very quickly. And I, I think it would be hard for uh, the U.S. right now. And I, I know in other places, in, in Kenya, in, in, um, in Senegal, in other areas, the, the Chinese are, are pretty much everywhere. So, so the, the short answer is, um, yeah, it's, I believe China has a, a much greater potential to control, uh, to have a, a larger uh, foothold than uh than the developing countries. I mean, I'm sorry, the, 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 like France and, and the United States. Uh, ben, we've spoken uh, once or twice before uh, on the app. Give us a sense of how you've seen Africa change in your time since you've been based in Burkina Faso. Well, uh, truthfully, <laughs> we've only been here for about um, eight months. Um, so this, I'm, I'm still um, getting used to it, but I, I've I have studied a bit. Uh, prior to this, we were stationed in, in Uruguay uh, for uh, three years. So uh, I probably know more about South America. But, but with that said, um, well, Burkina Faso, you know, for, you know like, like anything else, from the outside world, uh, Africa looks like one big country. But once you're in here, there are very distinct societies, even within Burkina Faso, there are 51 distinct um, uh, tribal uh, ethnicities. So, Thank you, um, Ben. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I just thought I'd mention that. And, and so what happens is, is that um, uh, it, it depends on where you are. Uh, you know, we're right next to Mali and, and Niger, uh, which Mali is, is essentially a, a failed state. They have all of their own issues, but you go across the border, and even though we have a lot of challenges here in Burkina Faso, um, the culture here, the, the the music, the people are amazing. And um, I, I see with uh, just a little support uh, for their institutions, I see them being able to uh, produce, to develop a really uh, successful uh, institutions and, and um the answer is it depends. Uh, but it, it's amazing. It's like I said, um, you can really see an amazing potential to accelerate, you know, for the good. I mean, you, it, just south of here is, is Ghana, which has a, a really thriving, growing economy. Uh, Rwanda is, is, they call it, the Singapore of Africa. Things are moving very uh, quickly in a, in a positive direction. So... Um, it's something that, that we all need to keep an eye on, and I think people in the West need to uh, learn about it more because uh, it, it's, it's very important what's going on here. Lola, you are a, um, a Nigerian-American. Nigeria is forecast... Otherwise to... known as Nymerican. 
absolutely. Nigeria is forecast to be uh, in one of the 10 biggest economies by 2050. Um, what are the inherent problems which are maybe hampering Nigeria meeting that potential right now? Corruption. I mean, I hate to be that basic about it. I'll briefly share an anecdote. And Ben, it's so amazing to see you here and hear about the work you're doing in the region. Um, so thank you for that. Um, but last time I was in Nigeria is about two years ago now for a wedding, actually between a, a friend uh, who is Nigerian American like myself and uh, her now husband, who's a white guy from the States. He visited for the first time. So we were touring him around and getting to the point of the story. One of the things one of my uncles took us to go do was sort of observe all the opulent mansions in the Victoria Island region of Lagos, which is where a lot of the government um, related in individuals who have obscene amounts of money for some you know, reason that I think makes very little sense to me as far as being public servants. Um, and like the opulence is just obscene. I mean, you see flowers flown in from Switzerland and not to say that as Nigerians, we shouldn't have access to that level of wealth. But the problem for me that's going to hamper the sort of um, growth at, that only happens when wealth is distributed in a fashion that allows the majority of people to at least have access to thriving um, is not happening. And, and, I, and that's because of corruption. It is the biggest problem that we have. And it leads to the inability for very simple infrastructure problems to not get solved. Every single time I go to Nigeria, we don't have electricity for a 24-hour period without the use of a generator. So that means that if you are not a like reasonably wealthy person, you don't even have electricity. That is not okay in a society that is where where some people are able to import their flowers from Switzerland. So I'll ju I'll pause there. But Roy, I hope that answers your question. Bilal, thank you. Um, and I just wanted to um, quickly respond to Ben um, with his uh, analysis on China within Africa. Um, first, I would agree with his assessment um, to an extent. Um, I myself have, I've been to Mali, Senegal, uh, South Sudan, I've been to Ethiopia, Kenya, um, Guinea-Bissau, and I'm also half Somali. Um, so, you know, one thing I think that is, that is missing, though, is that with the Chinese investment that is happening in Africa, one thing that the Chinese do is that they bring in all of their own contractors and their like local um, Chinese workers. And that causes a lot of tensions between the local Africans who are, let's say, unemployed or who are looking for the development and, let's say, between the Chinese workers. And there have actually been several incidences throughout um, several African countries of clashes between the two. And the second issue that I think some political leaders are kind of recognizing now and we've seen the Chinese have started doing this where a lot of that development seems like it comes no strings attached, right? But, you know, as soon as you either don't pay the loan or you get behind in the payments, then they'll start doing things like nationalizing your um, water infrastructure, nationalizing certain resources that your country has. And so we've seen in certain countries where the Chinese basically like have nationalized other people's um, resources, right? You know, that has also kind of 
cause some tensions between with certain African countries and 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 the Chinese. It doesn't mean that the Chinese still doesn't have influence. They do. It doesn't mean that the Chinese are not still investing. They are. But um, I think that there are some underlying tensions in particular between the workers and how that development is happening that's causing a little bit more um, than which is kind of on the surface. And my final thing I would like to say is that uh, President Obama in 2016 at the African Union had given a really, really good speech on the role of um, the United States uh, in Africa and in particular um, competing with China. And he laid out in that speech um, several really good points trying to basically advertise why the United States is, is better for business. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to like take up time, but I really recommend people look up that speech because he lays out a lot of the points and a lot of those things have started coming to fruition about five to six years later with what's happening with that um, relationship. So I'm glad I'm done speaking. Thank you, Bilal. Uh, Dr. Terry Gibbons, you kind of specialize in looking at migration and immigrants uh, around the world. Could you tell us some of the demographic pressures that Africa is going to go on, uh, going to experience, sorry, in the next 20 years and how that's going to affect the rest of the globe? But let's give us a wider spread in terms of population growth uh, and, and migration and refugees specifically emanating from Africa. So I mentioned this earlier today in a different room, but I think the biggest pressure is going to come from climate change. And because climate change is impacting so many countries, but there's also conflict, of course. So a lot of the movement of people are seeing people, well, there's the economic component, there's the conflict component, and then there's the climate change component. And, you know, in terms of the next 20 years globally, I just think we're going to see more and more movement of people. Um, people are going to be trying to get away from places where there's flooding, places where um, the storms are getting worse, places where there's drought, um, and places where they can't get work. Um, and they're going to want to go to, you know, we, we were already seeing, the, you know, these flows into Europe, um, into the U.S., and those pressures are, are only going to increase. And the politics around it are very, very difficult um, in so many different ways. And so, you know, what we're seeing in Afghanistan right now with kind of a you know semi reluctance to take to be willing to take a lot of refugees is going to be true going forward. So I, I think, you know, some of the future conflicts are gonna revolve potentially around immigration or migration from places, you know, where and, and actually pe some people argue that even the Syrian conflict uh, you know originated with issues from climate change. Yes. So <laughs> thank you. Um, so I, I, it's only because I do a lot of reading. I'm not so I'm not a demographer per se, but I certainly pay attention to these things. And I, I just think the pressures from climate change are just going to push so many people uh, to try to go to different places. And that's going to be a huge source of conflict. Thank you, Dr. Terry. Mac, I'm going to come to you next because I know that you're in Berlin and after the Syrian civil war started germany took in one million syrian immigrants i know you haven't been in berlin that long uh, maybe about a year or so but could you kind of explain to us on the ground how uh the, the relatively new uh, wave of syrian migrants are viewed within germany how have they been integrated into society but also you're um, a recent migrant yourself uh, from canada um how does it feel uh, to be um, a Canadian living in Berlin? I guess I'll start by saying um, I'm an African 
immigrant to Canada. I'm actually a refugee. Um, so I share a lot of commonality between the refugees here um, in, in Germany and, in, and all over Europe. Um, but when it comes to how I'm treated compared to the um, the Syrians and and the other communities, um, and the, frankly, the Africans here are treated far different the way, than the way that I'm treated. I don't speak German. I'm learning German. And people, when they, I think most people um, make the assumption that I'm American because of the way that I speak. And it's just, it's not uh, the same treatment at all. It's, it's, I, 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 sometimes I kind of feel like an expat, but most of the time it's somewhere in the middle where there's this mm, acceptance of me here as a Canadian, but also like, I know that, um, if I were, if I had immigrated here as a Somali refugee and to just touch upon your question on how I feel as a Canadian in Berlin, it's been, it's been a little bizarre. I mean, I went to school in France, so I already had an, um, an understanding and, you know, like just a cultural touchstone of what it's like to be, you know, black in, in Europe. Berlin is not Germany. And if you only know Berlin, you really don't know Germany. Largely what I see in the Arab and, um, Turkish communities who are really present here is there is a huge segregation. There are areas of the city where you just know you're walking into a community that's largely Turkish or largely um, Arab. And I think much of the Arab community who have been Lebanese and other other communities from the Middle East, uh, there are Syrians who work with them in the shops that they own. Um, it seems everything on the surface, there's a veneer of normalcy and kind of you know, people getting along, and this is Berlin, a very liberal place for the most part. But the segregation that's happening to me is, I mean, it's its not simply the result of people wanting to stay within their communities. It's also, also the result of um, institutionalized racism. Uh, I don't see that the Syrians have been really integrated into society. You hear many, you know, success stories, but largely when it comes to how they've been accepted in the country, they haven't been. There's a huge resentment that's growing across the country and within Berlin, definitely. Um, there's there's areas of Berlin that if you're black, you just don't go there. There's one neighborhood called Marzahn, it's in East Berlin. And um, there's an Ikea located there that I went to because it was the closest Ikea to where I, I lived. But I always felt extremely uncomfortable knowing that you know, were I not just coming here for the shop, this is not a place that I could really just frequent and 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 feel at ease. So there are no go, there are effective no go zones for people of color, certainly for Black people. Um, I think that Syrians have had a very different acceptance into the community um, compared to their Turkish counterparts who have been here for three or four generations. Uh, the Turkish here are very um, established. The Syrians are not. They're still, you know, a refugee community. Many of them who came to the country were extremely young, um, you know, school-aged children. And I think they're still going through their integration process and also just trying to, um, you know, just graduate school and get jobs. I think there's a lot of good things happening, but the German community, of, like, of course, have not um, accepted, fully accepted their presence here. Um, Britain obviously brexited from Europe. There was an election uh, in 2016 and 52% of uh, Britons decided to leave the EU. And at the heart of that, there were fundamentally two issues, uh, a fear of immigration, but also 
a distrust of political institutions, i.e. the EU and governance not being at the national level. How have we seen our distrust of institutions play out within the US? Let's go to you, A.B. Yeah, and honestly, I think this is something that's been brewing for quite some time. I mean, since Reagan in the 80s, you've had, um, you know, a growing contempt uh, within the right uh, for government institutions, or at least at the very least, a suspicion about government and big government. And slowly it's eroded um, that trust that we have. And of course, Donald Trump is, you know, he did his his part in um and fanning the flames. So at, at this point going forward, um, I, I, I have to say, yes, like we we're at a point where I, if, if I don't know if this this uh, is actually done on a poll or not, but I'd have to say that a, 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 a great majority of Americans do have a great distrust towards government um, and their institutions, um, be it media, be it um, be, be it uh, a, a lot of things. And um, that fracturing, that distrust, I think uh, it, it's not healthy for a social cohesion, nor is it for, um, you know, anything moving forward, especially when it comes to uh, be it politics or, um, you know, social relationships. Aaron, we've basically established that there is this distrust. This distrust is all throughout the uh, the liberal world in terms of us looking at tried and tested institutions of governance. And we're now much more sceptical about it. We're trying to look 20 years into the future. How can we get trust back into our institutions? You threw me the softball, huh? Um <laughs> You know, I, I think that the you know the, one of the largest parts of what we face, and I, I really think this is just governance all around, is that there hasn't been a whole lot of honesty about where we stand and what the sort of most important things are that we face. I and mean, I want to echo what Dr. Terry was saying about the you know the overwhelming importance of, of climate change. Um, you know, we you know just staying in the U.S. for a second. You know, we have one of the most populated states in the country where the majority of people um, live in a place where within a generation or two, it's unlikely to be habitable. And that's not even something that's, you know, really being addressed or spoken to directly. There's been a lot of promises that were made about whether it was prosperity or, you know, what life would look like that, that weren't met. And um, there's been a lot of uh, manipulation and corruption that's happened at the same time that there's been much more transparency that's been created by, uh, you know, by, by media, um, by the internet, but, you know, just by living in this more connected world. And so I think that the tolerance that people um, have and that governments can, so sort of what governments can get away with in today's society is just much less. And so the standard of governance needs to go way up very quickly. And I'm not sure that we can actually meet the challenge in the time that we need to, but um, pretty soon we're not going to have much of a choice. Um, I think we will see a lot of places that or a lot more places I should say I should say that are just going to be completely destabilized and um, that's going to increase the pressure for better governance and I, I really fear what that's going to look like. Kelly is uh, Aaron right that things have to get worse for them to get better in terms of us having trust in in our institutions we, we saw 
on January the 6th, uh, what the distrust in one of the most fundamental elements of democracy, uh, the vote and collating the vote, actually what that can actually do. But is Aram right if we look in 20 years into the future that things have to get worse before they get better? Or can we try and build that trust uh, in our institutions? And let's start with America. Can we do that now before things get any worse? I imagine there are some things we could do to start rebuilding trust. But honestly, I do think Aram's right about things getting worse before they get better. Uh, I, I don't know that we would agree on on why that is or the things that need to change. But um, I, I think that our constituent our constituency has to do it. And, and I think that's going to take time. We have to understand that we have a responsibility to pay attention to our government and to who we elect. And until we do that, we're not going to be able to expect anything better. Let's stay with America before uh, we go back into the world. Immediately, what does uh, this uh, defeat at Kabul mean for American domestic politics and then for American foreign politics? Lola. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to kick us off with um, an observation that I think relates to uh, Bilal bringing up the media, I think one of the implications domestically is some what some might characterize, and I being one of them, false validation um, for the Republican Party around our current president's inability to control situations. Uh, so that's A. And then the second part of your question, what is the global um, implication of that? You know, I think... <sighs> I think it just makes this moment even more fraught with a question of what is our ability to positively impact the human humanitarian aspects of specifically the issue in Afghanistan and, and what is going to be the decision, whether or not we lean into that to the extent that we should, how is that going to be influenced by uh, the political tensions that are, are currently arising? I don't know. I'm very skeptical that this is going to have any long-term impact. Um, I think that people haven't thought much about Afghanistan and in a year when, you know, we're looking at the election, I don't think that foreign policy is going to be high on the agenda for most voters. Um, I just think that, you know, in another month or two, we're just going to forget. And that seems to be very, I mean, look at how easily and quickly we, we forgot about Syria. Um, you don't hear anybody, you know, talking about, what's going on in Syria. Um, and I think foreign policy has just become such an incredibly low priority for Americans and to a certain extent for Europeans as well. And I think, you know, we're not going to take it. We're going to take in some Afghans. We're not going to take in a huge number of Afghans. Um, and I just, I just have a hard time seeing how this has long-term impact because uh, and it's partly my, um, skepticism and, and, you know, pessimism, but also just the fact that Afghanistan just doesn't seem to be that important for most people. So that's R my... Rebecca for the Blacks. Um, surely, um, 
when the dust settles on this, I'm going to disagree with, with Dr. Terry here. When the dust settles on this, hard questions are going to be asked in the Defense Department in terms of the amount of money that America spends on military material. America spends what the same, what the next 20 countries combined spend on its military. That's how disproportionate it is to every other country, even China. It massively outspends China. Surely, if America is slowly but surely retreating militarily from the rest of the world, the military industrial complex needs to pay that price. It needs to be reduced. Yeah, I would have to, I mean, I adore Dr. Terry, but I would have to disagree. I think that uh, we're coming up on 20 years of 9-11. So 9-11 always represents a reboot. to towards patriotism, um, love of country. This is who, you know, this is who America is, you know, this happened to us never again. So that's a, you know, like a clock, you know, it's, you know, it it happens at 12 o'clock, you know, it's ding, 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 you know? So I think that that is, that is a reset that kind of whips people out of rational thought and back, back into emotionality. Right. So whether the normal tide of, you know, the ebb and flow of, oh, we care, oh, we don't care, you know, sale for Black Friday or Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. Um, I think that it's coming up on the 20-year the anniversary. So this is colossal in terms of really giving America an introspection as to what the hell have we done and what we're going to do moving forward. Um, I was a part of the Occupy movement, and we used to always talk about defense tr- contractors, Lockheed Martin, Uh, Boeing, right? And I challenge anyone right now to go look at the defense national budget. It's a pie chart. And like two thirds of it is for defense. One tiny, 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 you might need a microscope sliver, or you might really need to like zoom in with your fingers on your touch screen to look at the education budget. It's like 3%. It might be 4% now. Don't, you know, don't hold me to it, but it's like literally three or 4%. And then when we look at the budget, um, the defense budget that also includes defense contractors. It includes all of these so-called advisors that didn't know, <laughs> like that Al Qaeda was come, you know, doing what they're doing. So, you know, this is padding the wallet of a lot of, um, and I'll say this again, men that are over there, right? So, who was packed on that plane? Now, mind you, I heard that that plane was like, uh, like over capacity by over a hundred people. Like it was overweight. It was way too many people. So who knows about COVID protocols on that plane, but outside of that, it was all men. So to what degree, you know, are we looking at the weapons manufacturers? Are we looking at the defense contractors? Are we looking at these bloated budgets and, 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 and Occupy, we always used to say, who do you protect? Who do you serve? Can I just say something really quickly, if I could jump in quickly? I just want to be clear that just because the United States is pulling back on Afghanistan does not necessarily equate to a reduction of defense spending, right? So so I think the defense budget, to my knowledge, has actually not reduced. And I think what is happening is that there's just kind of like a reallocation of resources around the world. Like I, I, I think about what Obama wanted to do, his quote unquote pivot towards Asia, right? And he wanted to basically strengthen the South China Sea and he wanted to basically have a, a new kind of strategic defense partnership to kind of like offset the rise of China. You know, that's what they were thinking about getting away from the Middle East. 
pretty much were redeploying resources, you know, right before he left office, they had put um, NATO troops right on, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, NATO borders to offset, let's say, Russian aggression. And then also there might be a reallocation of resources towards 21st century types of, of defense, whether it comes to cyber crimes and things like that. So I don't want it to, you know, to be any like mistake that that they're thinking that just because you're leaving one actor or you're leaving one region that the money's going to re- reallocate it towards, let's say, more social programs, domestic products. To my knowledge, unless I see something differently, it the defense budget is still at the same level. It's just shuffling the decks and moving to another part, another region of the world. So, but on that point, though, uh, Bilal, and anyone can feel free to chime in with this. The way that America has rapidly pulled out of Afghanistan and there has been an overwhelming desire for the last 12 years in uh, in, in the halls of, of American uh, uh, foreign power in, in, in its embassies, which is a desire to retreat. How strong is American commitment today to Taiwan? How strong... Uh, today is American commitment to uh, maintain all of its bases in South Korea? How strong is American commitment to maintain its massive military presence in Okinawa? So there are three countries, if we say that Taiwan is a country for the sake of this argument, um, it is. How strong is that commitment? The American people are tired of these foreign entanglements. Those aren't foreign entanglements. Those are ways that we maintain our presence in Asia, which I don't think is going over. But I also think, though... Hold on. Hold on. Can we... There were some facts that were misidentified in terms of budget. My name is Alex, and I'm coming to you from the traditional lens of the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabek, which is Toronto, Ontario. Um, The facts are... Someone did say that U.S. defense spending is up. It's up about to $730 billion from uh, 670 approximately the year before. Um, but it's not, the pie chart is not a third or half or two-thirds a defense. Defense of the total outlays of $4.4 trillion, defense is, 600 and, is $730 billion roughly, let's say this year, um, which puts it behind Social Security, slightly ahead of Medicare, and uh, about double what uh, Medicaid is. So I think if we're going to talk about progressive issues and we're going to say, hey, defense spending needs to decrease because it's bloated, it's out of proportion in comparison with other countries, which it is, we can't go and be hyperbolous about the facts of what they actually are. Thanks, Alex. I'm so sorry. I had already put the defense budget uh, in my PTR prior to you speaking. But yeah, also, Alex, just a little bit of context. I mean, Medicare... Uh, Medicaid, Social Security are like entitlement spending, right? Where defense spending is more considered, I don't know if the term is discretionary. So I guess in the context, you kind of need to see defense spending within this context of, let's say, education or social programs, like other spending, because those entitlement programs are like fixed in. But I don't want to kind of get off track with that. I think Rossfield had asked a question about the the military bases around the world. I think what's really important is that I, I agree with you that the Americans are tired of basically foreign entanglements, right? But I think what they're tired of is the fact that they're seeing that like 
their own lives, let's say, haven't improved over the last, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years while we have been tied up around the world. And I'm talking about like very basic needs when it's like infrastructure, you know, rising cost of education, uh, inequality. And I think Americans are seeing, well, my life itself is not improving, but yet I'm seeing all this money being spent abroad. Why am I, why am my money going over there when I can't get to work without a pothole, like destroying my car and me having to pay $700 to get repairs? Like, I think it's a very microeconomic connection that they see. And I think one of the most important things that America can do, and frankly speaking, that like democracies can do around the world is to prove that governments can still work. I actually think like, this is an argument that Joe Biden made at the G7 that I kind of think went under the radar was that he, when he went to the G7, he said, guys, we still have to prove that like democracy actually can work tangibly to change the lives of people, whether it's addressing climate change, addressing infrastructure, things like that. Because if we prove that it doesn't work, then people will be more likely to say, hey, you know what? We're going to go with the dictator. We're going to go with the totalitarian. We're okay with having Trump in power for, let's say, 10, 20, 30 years if I can get my dang blasted pothole fixed. So I think it's like very like micro um, things that, you know, government needs to do to prove it can still function. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And, and America has just unequivocally proven that democracy is not something that it can export and can prove that it is better for the lives of foreigners. I mean, the U.S. foreign policy resources have been completely wasted on chauvinist ideals and like punching down while China is enriching itself through the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I mean, it's debt, it's debt trap diplomacy for sure, um, but it's still putting money in the hands of poor countries, even momentarily. Um, and just as Bilal referenced the G7, um, you know, they, they also announced a copycat, a copycat initiative of the um, Belt and Road, which is, I, th- I think it's called Build Back Better. I mean, I know it was like compounding elements like the pandemic, you know, uh, China is so economically powerful, I think, you know, and I think China, I, I could be wrong, but I think I read that in 2020, China is like pretty much the only country that whose economy grew during the, the first year of the pandemic. Um, and like, I just, 
I just can't understate, you know, just the ineptitude of like NGOs in Africa and in developing countries. Like these are unfortunately many people who just bide their time in African countries before like hoping to angle for more influential or better paying jobs or just simply better located positions in more cushy countries. Like the UN in the eyes of Africans and people in the global South, it's just one of like ghost colonialism. You know, they show up where there are disasters and there's humanitarian crises. Um, but, you know, those crises in, um, are born of interventionalism and colonialism. And China comes along, gives people money in their hands, whereas European, you know, autocrats and elite were doing that to a few corrupt people in the ruling class or factions who are like vying for power. But there's been nowhere near the amount of actual infrastructure building as there have been by like, other foreign powers, not just China, like Turkey's in Somalia, um, the, the Gulf countries like Qatar and, and, and the UAE are fighting proxy wars with Turkey in many African countries. Um, and instead of like, you know, dropping bonds, they've been spending money. And let's just slightly move this away uh, from America. We've seen the flashpoint of the West's defeat in Afghanistan. And the ripples of that will be manifest and will last for years. But you're, uh, you're a, a student of geopolitics, Piotr. Where will we see the next global emergency? Um, Taiwan is a concern. The South China Sea is a concern, um, given the continued encroachment of the CCP on on the island and, and what we've seen in Hong Kong over the past couple of years. Taiwan is, is the next point. But I, I think it's very interesting because what we've seen in terms of the US, the UK and allies um, when they're going through uh, the South China Sea a couple of weeks ago when the HMS Queen Elizabeth went through the, the South China Sea, there was a lot of hostering and call-outs from the CCP given that they think that they're, uh, the, uh, any, any you know foreign military ship is um, trespassing within their backyard when it's actually freedom of navigation. Um, now, as I say, that the... The CCP mainly just shadowed the ships. It was a small uh, entity of an aircraft carrying a couple of destroyers, I think. But that's about as far as it went. Uh, and I think it was quite indicative of the fact that the CCP are beginning to feel a little bit rattled. And they're not the most popular country in the world. They're increasingly isolated. Um, what we saw with this um, 100-year anniversary and the way that they held the, the process and the way Jinping was dressed as, to sort of, you know, commemorate Mao in such a evident way. For me, it was chilling to watch that. Now, obviously, given what's happened in Afghanistan, this has changed the narrative quite a lot. And it might have emboldened the, the CCP again, um, given that they were the first country to actually acknowledge the Taliban as a, uh, as a legitimate uh, you know, replacement, not necessarily just immediately government, but just to sort of, you know, the new, those new in charge of Afghanistan. I would say that, you know, we're going to have to be conscious of how Taiwan continues to resist the CCP's desire for it to align to their values and, and way of um, structuring, you know, a state. The one thing I would say is that there's a difference between taking Taiwan uh, and keeping Taiwan. We've seen a lot of increased over the past couple of days Chinese uh, PLA military activities. Um, so, you know, I don't want to 
hasten too much conjecture on what could happen out there, but it is somewhere that I'm always constantly quite worried about. Other than that region, I mean, there's improvements in the Venezuelan situation, I hope. Africa, I mean, Tigray could spill over into a regional issue. This is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast, which looks at primarily US and UK uh, news and views. But we do take in uh, news from around the world. And very obviously, that's what we've done uh, today. So the podcast has been running for some seven years. If you're listening in the audience, why don't you go into a podcast of your choice after the end of this room, type in Mid-Atlantic, and uh, you'll see a a whole lot of shows. And uh, last week, uh, we had Soledad O'Brien. So uh, we're trying to kind of mix things up here on the show and get not only people who are incredibly informed, but also kind of uh, people who've helped kind of deliver the news to kind of explain uh, their, their, explain their, their view of the news as well. So, so that's us also uh, hit the little green uh, house and uh, become a member of mid Atlantic. So whenever we go live with these rooms, you can join us. Now, what we're going to do now is going to invite uh, people on stage um, what has happened in Kabul is much more significant than the fall of Saigon. Um, the Americans should never have been in Vietnam and they, and they lost a war, basically fought around hubris. That had little immediate geopolitical effect on American prestige and American material, that fall in Saigon. This is completely different because it points to a retreat of American power the projection of power throughout the world. This is completely different. This is completely different in in terms of scale. But we don't want to just uh, bang on about Afghanistan or America. We want to look at how the world is going to be changed uh, by the fact there won't be a unipolar world anymore. I think this is incredibly important. And And we need to look at China, and, and Taiwan, as Piotr has said, I mean, maybe there are bits of the world of which uh, this retreat of American power is going to be incredibly significant for. So we've called on stage uh, Beautiful Farrell, Farrell and uh, Ben, and we have Mustafa, uh, who we've just invited on stage. Roger, real quick, um, before you get to uh, um, introducing uh, the new people who I'm sure have been waiting patiently, I actually wanted to... Uh... I actually wanted to give a quick hot take on where I actually think the next hot world hotspot is going to be, the next conflict. Um, um, I actually think um, East Africa, which right now is, to, is very much rife with um, ethnic uh, conflict, in, uh, particularly uh, in uh, Tigray, where my mother is from. But in the backdrop of that is actually um, the Great Renaissance Dam has been a point of contention, primarily between Ethiopia, Sudan, and uh, Egypt, um, with Egypt being the probably the more aggressive of the of the uh, of the parties. Um, so they, they they are speaking of military intervention if Ethiopia doesn't concede to their demands regarding the dam. Um, so that uh, so I, I would not, it would not shock me if as soon as the uh, Tigray um, conflict is resolved or, or, or something comes uh, uh, to it um, in terms of uh, finding some type of resolution uh, within the government. Um, once that is done, uh, Egypt and Ethiopia could very much um, be going at it. And I think that that could definitely cause a domino effect, not just within the region, but other powers that are involved. Donna, you unmuted. Uh, I agree uh, with AB. Um 
not just even when the the conflict into gray ends i mean even potentially before it ends depending on how long it goes on i mean there's been so much tension uh, i think now we're seeing it more but i remember one of my trips there in 2013 and just the rhetoric going back and forth between uh ethiopia and egypt um you know over the gird in the very early stages which was only what a year or two in i think of the construction so i absolutely agree with you i think there's so much happening in the horn right now and i think it's definitely a place that people should watch can anybody else point the finger at another potential flashpoint? So we've had the South China Sea, uh, we've had uh, China and Taiwan, with potentially the CCP uh, kind of flexing its muscles there. AB has brought up the Horn of Africa. Uh, we know that there is this conflict in, in Tigray, uh, but specifically there is this major potential conflict between Egypt and Ethiopia o- over this dam. Ben Mendelssohn. Two things. Um, one is uh, a possible flashpoint. Uh, Israel and Iran, uh, two nuclear powers, or one potentially nuclear power. Um, that's a problem, and, and that's a flashpoint. But more generally, it's something that we, none of us have brought up that I think we need to look at. Um, the, the, there have been all of the, the pandemic is a mega event. It, it changed particularly in the United States and in the West. Um, everything stopped for a long period, uh, for a period of time. And, and 9-11 uh, was a mega event. Uh, the the um, 2008-2010 uh, um, depression in the United States was a mega event. It, the, the world stopped for at least a week. Uh, world War II was a mega event. Uh, my feeling is, is that the mega events have been happening every 10, 15 years. It's going to start accelerating. Um, it's going to be a mega event every five years instead of every 10 years. Some of that is going to be caused by climate change and climate issues. But I think the one that we haven't even talked about and we, we haven't put our head around is cyber warfare. When, when the cyber attack happened and they shut down the, the power plants, that was you know just a, a small taste of the destruction that could happen. It's not the destruction the disruption that could happen that could literally close down portions of the the world that, you know, that we won't essentially going to be in triage uh, until we get these things fixed in some constant effect of triage. Yeah, I'm thinking every five years we're going to have something like this and we better get used to it. I think that's an excellent point, Ben. And I've always been surprised by the the Russian attack on the government of, of Estonia. It was about 2010, 2011, where they gummed up all of the state computers. So the government of Estonia could not function for two days. This seems to have been forgotten uh, by the general populace that fundamentally a NATO member, the government was crippled by a foreign actor Russia, we know who did it, and uh, the response was just about mute uh, from NATO and from uh, the rest of the world. So I completely, utterly agree that cyber is going to be uh, one of the uh, the future platforms of war. Um, Terry, you unmuted. It's very interesting to me. We've talked about a lot of different areas of the world, but we have not talked about Latin America. And um, I think there are going to be some major issues. Uh, you know, even uh, conflict in Latin America going, you know, in the near future that will, 
you know, end up pulling in the U.S. potentially. But um, I, I think we, you know, climate change is, is impacting as well as just what's going on, you know, in places like Venezuela. Um, there's going to, I think we're going to see more conflict um, coming uh because of climate change and, and demographics and movements of people um, in Latin America. So I don't want to ignore one huge area of the world that I think is going to have a, a huge impact. You, you are right. And Latin America generally gets forgotten about in kind of geopolitics or climate concerns. We've, uh, we've had an economic implosion in Venezuela, which has meant that millions of Venezuelans uh, have left in the last three years. It's put massive pressure on on Colombia, on Ecuador, uh, the the neighbouring countries. But also, we've seen this kind of gradual replacement of the the Amazon rainforest by savanna in eastern Amazonia as well. So the the risk of the loss of biodiversity is absolutely uh, paramount um, in in South America. Piotr? No, I think uh, Dr. Terry, uh, who we had gratefully on during our room earlier and gave some fantastic insights, um, uh, is uh, uh, is very uh, astute with her point about Latin America, of which also is unrepresented um, on uh, Clubhouse. I, I rarely see rooms uh, focused on Latin American current affairs. Um, I think that given the work that I did with Amnesty um, around the time of the Venezuelan constitutional crisis, I think that I mean, as of today, I'm glad that the um, there was a report. The sides are going to actually finally uh, begin negotiations, but it doesn't mean that the country is going to be, you know, returning to a state of stability. The currency is absolutely shot, and the economy has been uh, so badly affected by that, and then COVID. Um, but the thing for me that is, it, it could be a trigger point is the. Um, is the effect of the humanitarian migration that has been, you know, pressuring so many of the other surrounding states, particularly Colombia. And given the, uh, only in 2016 when the Colombian peace deal was signed, um, there's been civil unrest uh, in the country as well, un, un, unrelated to that. But I just feel that there's quite a lot of elements that could boil over and we could see a potential uh, deterioration in the sort of northern part of South America, you know, between Colombia, Venezuela, uh, if things don't go well with the current, you know, administration. But as to say what time frame, it's a little bit difficult. Go on, Um, Shireen. Yeah, thank you. Um, There were a couple that I wanted to say really quickly, but I I do want to go back to the cyber war part. I think there was a a really missing conversation there. I mean, to to be really honest, Um, and that's just across the board. That isn't like even, even, what happened in, with our grids here in America has not is not being discussed uh, publicly the way it should be, including the hacks that have happened, um, and and what that means for our systems. Because if you do some overlays on where these attacks have happened over the year, there there's some testing beds going on that I think we're not paying attention to, and that's that's just America, but that doesn't count what may be happening in other countries. I, I honestly feel like it's one of the biggest pieces that we're not talking about enough. And I think mostly because most people don't get it politically or how they operate um, and overlap between the hacking versus um, the access to the grids, the ransomware conversations that I think sometimes we're not talking about enough of that really talks about the ways in which governments are being held hostage 
over over these types of systems. Um, so I, I just wanted to make sure that that I that was an important part of this conversation. But the other part in terms of global that I want to make sure that um, is also included is that I, honestly I, I think we're downplaying what might be happening in terms of either conflict or or consolidation between the Taliban, ISIS, and other groups. Um, I think that there is a missing conversation there. I also think that there is a missing conversation, the Saudi Arabia framework and Pakistan in connection to what's happened in Afghanistan. So those are just some key things I just wanted to put on the table because I just think that there's some missing conversations there. Thank you for that. We now have a lot of people on stage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call upon people who actually haven't spoken. And the thread of the conversation might be slightly be lost, but I know people have been waiting patiently uh, to speak for the last hour. So um, first I want to call on uh, Dr. Moisha uh, McAfee. Uh, doctor, um, where, do, where do you sit with, with our conversation? Please tell us. Hi, I'm Dr. Moisha McAfee. And... I want to enter the conversation not only as a social scientist, but also as an initiated healer. And I think that when I hear the thread of conversation that's moving more toward naming the conflicts that are currently happening, but also the ones where we expect something to arise, it, it brings up for me these huge questions around what, what is, what would the, the first peoples and indigenous people interpret about what's happening now. And I'm specifically thinking about um, the specific traditions that I am from and, and the Southern part of Africa, as well as the Western part. And when we see things like this level of war and conflict, this level of destabilization that's happening, this level of uh, economy, economies you know, the haves versus the economies that don't have, and particularly thinking about China and the way that it's using its resources to infiltrate through borrowing, um, to nations that, that are still looking to build. When I think about, I think the last number I saw was, um, I think it was like a 107 fires in 15 different states, at least in the U.S., and not even considering the other places. The ways that First Peoples and Indigenous Peoples would interpret that is, is that there's, there's something that human beings of this generation and maybe even our ancestors, where we're not in right relationship with something divine, whether that's right relationship with the earth in terms that we call climate change. But I think first in, first peoples or indigenous peoples will talk about, are we in right relationship with nature? Are we in right relationship with the spirits of the water, with the spirits of the wind, with the spirits of the earth? And what might we need to shift to do to be in right relationship, um, which is a different and maybe more ex uh, expanded conversation than, than climate change. I think people hear with a certain ear and may or may not actually be attuned to it. And also when we think about the ways that these destabilizing economies and nations are happening, even with the civil wars or the way genocide is being played out, to think about not only on the earthly plane, how might we be navigating these? But I think also as an initiated healer, there's also stuff that's happening on, on the ancestral plane that that and the spiritual plane that is needed to be worked out. And so I want to bring to a policy conversation, to an economic conversation, to a global conversation, the ways that there are first nation indigenous knowledge, knowledge and traditions, whether they're ancestral wisdom or um, ancient practices that I think could inform and complement the dialogue. I'm Dr. Mayusha and I'm done speaking. Thank you, Dr. Mayusha. We're going through uh, to people who haven't spoken. Uh, beautiful flower. Yes, thank you, Royfield. 
uh, with the fall of Kabul. If I also relate it back to the charter that's coming out of Nigeria, especially with the northern Nigeria that is somewhat sympathetic to uh, the sect in Taliban. And it's problematic because the, the, the social media post, uh, I, I, I think the takeover of the Taliban is sending this message uh to the to the Boko Haram and the Iswat problem we have in northern Nigeria and also the social media um, posting they've been doing all day and so I guess it's more of oh y- you know your ideology will conquer uh, just bid your time uh, lay low that's very problematic actually and also um, the problem with the Shias um, in Nigeria. Uh, their leader actually was released. Um, again, the government is trying to go back in and try him. So we have different sects, uh, the Sunni, of course, backed uh, by the kingdom, and also Iran funding the Shia in Nigeria. And so these are the uh, are things that I'm currently looking at. But I'll come back around. I have many thoughts. Thank you, Royfield. No, no, uh, thank you, Beautiful Flower. Just before you go, um, just remind us who Boko Haram are and some of the atrocities that they've been associated with in northern Nigeria, please. Thank you. So Boko Haram started in Nigeria in 2008, 2009. And Boko Haram uh, simply means um, Western education is something. I've forgotten, but I'll look it up. Uh, basically, it's just to push back on Western ideology. Um, they kidnap girls, kidnap school children. In northern Nigeria, this is a terrorist group actually funded by, um, you know, um, <laughs> by ISIL sometimes. And then they have a different body, ISWAP. They've taken over a particular state in Nigeria. The citizens actually pay taxes uh, for protection. So they mimic the same um, ideology with ISIL and some of uh, the Taliban. We currently in Nigeria have a communications minister whose video leaked on social media. His name is Isa Pantami, who in the past made comments, actually praised um, Osama bin Laden. So you can see the ties, uh, you know, and it's, again, very problematic, actually. Um, He didn't resign even when those videos surfaced. I don't know why. And we can see a rise, actually, in this um, extremist um, cells, if uh, as we call them, um, they are overwhelmingly powerful. Really, uh, they keep going to the Al Shabaab in Sudan. Some some sects actually, it's not just one one of them. Somalia, not Sudan. Yeah, Shabaab in Somalia. Somalia, sorry, um, for training, and then when they come back, uh, you know, they sort of reinforce. We also have the same issue with captured Boko Haram terrorists. They claim they've been rehabilitated. And then once the United, um, the American army, so um, the Nigerian army, I apologize, releases them back uh, to the public under the guise that they've been rehabilitated, they go right back. And so <laughs> it just, it's, it's, it's just so similar because we know the leader. Um, Very similar. Uh, and, and it shows you how in, interconnected all of these things are because a victory for the Taliban gives extra impetus uh, to Boko Haram in northern Nigeria. Hadjit, uh, thank you for that correction. You've waited so long. Um, please uh, tell us where you come in on this conversation. Pharrell, uh, you're up next, sir. 
Thank you. So I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on the cyber warfare, and I'll, I'll I'll roll it back to why it's related to Kabul. The comments in the room that were made here in that cyber warfare will be or this or that. Nah, it is. It absolutely is. A when you look at war. When you look at a battle strategy, you look at what your high ground is, you look at your opportunity to win the battle, to win the war. That high ground, yeah, space is, an, is, is a high ground, but the real high ground is cyber warfare. It's the internet, it's the intranets, it's the dark web, it's the other environments that you don't know about. The battle rages. We are in a worldwide war. We've been in this war for quite a while. It's been getting more and more and more aggressive, more open. There's been events that have occurred in the United States that people said, hey, it's hackers, it's this, that. When Cisco got hit, it didn't even make the public news the way it did for the given oil company. That, all, all the cyber defense contractors, the chatter going on, it was very clear that it was state-sponsored. But nobody wanted to go to war over it because there's no money in it at this point. There's no preparedness for it. There's the talk about China, Taiwan. Um, I mean, I, I could dive into this deep, but I will roll this backwards to Kabul. So you have these conversations of the um, modern day elements left over from the Mujahideen and what the U.S. originally failed to do to respect that whole relationship, which then potentially, if you want to argue, gave birth to the Taliban. And all of this has evolved into modern, modern warfare. And modern warfare is in the cyberspace. The Taliban, ISIS, every single actor in the world that wants to have control, power, or do harm, um, whether it's in a given space, a regional space, or globally, they have to act within the cyberspace. They have to do it. If they don't, they're not a player. When a unit for the U.S. military, the Canadian military, the British, whoever, when they go in, they're not going in just because they've got aircraft or they've got this or they've got that. Their cyber intelligence, their cyber actions have led the way. That's the pathfinder. So in the case of the Taliban, you can't kid yourself thinking that they are not highly sophisticated. They are extremely sophisticated. Their hacker core is fairly capable. And they are working for their own end goal. So what will happen with Kabul or because of Kabul? Well, now you've got a Taliban force that now has a whole bunch of military assets that have been provided to the Afghan government and been left over from the exit that's rapidly happening because none of the gear that's dropped there comes back. There's no capability to do that or the money or care to do it. They just It's easier to leave the gear there. So now you've got a much more capable force on the hard asset element and they've got cyber capability. So the cyber capability will start to embolden the entire terrorist network and whatever other elements support that from whatever other direction. As it was stated, it's a very complicated environment. It is an absolute web, no pun intended to the internet, but the cyber warfare activity is absolutely raging. And the only reason that entire countries haven't collapsed is because of the defense architecture in countries like the United States, Canada, UK, China, etc. They are constantly fighting each other. If you were to look at some of the things that you can potentially see out there, you would see that this is an all-out war that's going on, and we're just thankful, just be thankful it hasn't shifted to state against state warfare on an open field with military. We're at the cusp of that, but thankfully we haven't gone there. So the cyber warfare is definitely raging. 
Alexa, where do you come in on this conversation? Um, hi. Uh, I am thinking about uh, some of the climate change issues and the impact that that is going to have. We have a, there's a group that we're doing for Mothers First tomorrow on the designing for climate um, <clears throat> calamities and the Maldives and the islands and the, the, the like, likelihood that, you know, they will be covered by water and where, where are those in all the rooms she goes into, she'll ask where, who's going to take us, who's going to um, take us into their country. And I, I think that that is, as we deal with climate crisis and change and um, weather systems and uh, a lot of people displaced, uh, what are we going to do and how, how are we going to manage that? So that's, that's been on my mind a lot. And uh, I, I'm not sure um, kind of how people are thinking about that or addressing that issue. So thank you. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Alexa. I know Dr. Terry did talk about climate change and how that's going to um, help uh, push this kind of migrant uh, emergency. But yes, specifically in the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific, it's incredibly urgent. Some of these small island nations are literally sinking uh, as we speak. Uh, they only have about 50 years left before they're going to be underwater. So it's good for you to, to bring that up. So very obviously, you had a multiplicity of views of people quite literally all around the world talking about some of the threats uh, that the world is going to face in the, in the next 20 years. What I'd like you to do is to email in to the show and uh, quite simply go on to midatlanticshow.com hit contact us and tell us some of the areas which you think we have neglected to talk about it feels incredibly dystopian we're at uh, a, a crisis point an inflection point uh, with this uh, rapid american withdrawal from afghanistan and the collapse of the afghan government but i think you can actually see some of the links which can be made with other conflicts around the world um, we saw we had somebody who spoke from from northern Nigeria who explained that uh, the the rise of the Taliban again actually what that does to Boko Haram uh, within uh, northern uh, northern Nigeria. So these these elements might feel incredibly unconnected, but they all actually are. I'm somebody who's um, from Jamaican parentage in Birmingham. My brother is an Afghan. He was from uh, born in Kandahar and was adopted by my family in 2007. He was a refugee. He escaped because at that point, uh, the secular forces in Afghanistan were coming after his father. His father was a member of the Taliban. He hates the Taliban, but his uncle told him to get out of, uh, out of Afghanistan and he was smuggled to the UK. So on a very personal level, I, I'm touched by what is going on in Afghanistan and um, we all are um, migrants somewhere. We all are the children of conflict. You might have to go back one or two generations, but we all are, and we all should be concerned and be connected to what's actually happened in um, Afghanistan today. So that's been Mid-Atlantic. I'm so sorry it feels dystopian, but we are going to continue the conversation when um, after the podcast. If you would like to be in the audience for one of these shows, quite simply, all you need to do 
is uh, download the Clubhouse app, find Mid Atlantic, the the club, become a member, then you'll be alerted when we go live. Or you can give me a follow. You know, you know my name. It's Royfield. Give me a follow, and then basically you can be alerted when I do these shows as well. Love to see you as part of the audience for the show. And don't forget, folks, left of centre politics is right thinking politics. Take care, look after yourselves, and look after your loved ones even better. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.